Welcome to the Global Venturing Review Podcast. My name's James Mawson, founder and editor-in-chief of our Global Corporate Venturing, Global University Venturing and Global Impact Venturing publications. Great pleasure to be back here once again with Thierry Hillis from uh, Global University Venturing. Welcome, Thierry. Hello, Jim. How are you today? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. It's a Friday. We just had an exciting week. But before we actually get to the uh, the main news of the week uh, if, uh, that you've sort of selected, uh, a quick word of thanks to our chairman of the Global Corporate Venture and Leadership Society Advisory Board, who's young son, who's uh, announced he'll be stepping down from Samsung's main role as the Chief Strategy Officer and Corporate President in order to step main chairman of Harman, one of the companies he acquired for $8 billion in the largest acquisition by a Korean company, and also being a senior advisor to Samson, as well as a couple of other moves at Samson. So Young Sun over the past year has been sort of chair of the Leadership Society, helping us steer the sort of corporate venturing community and develop things like the Global Innovation Venturing and GCV Institute has been a real thought leader and sort of powerhouse for us. So thank you personally for me, Young. But also I'll quickly reference a couple of the other moves because it's actually probably hard to overstate the achievements South Korea listed conglomerate Samsung have made over the past few decades in dominating a host of industries, particularly chips and electronics. From fast follower to leader requires a mindset shift in how to create markets as well as outperform or scale up innovations created elsewhere. In this, Samsung has had inspiring leadership under Young Sun since 2012. Sun initiated and led that $8 billion acquisition of Harman and firmly placed Samsung in vanguard of the audio and automotive industry. Sun also led Samsung's Catalyst Corporate Venturing Program, so he be responsible for a $2 billion fund investing in emerging businesses worldwide in areas including artificial intelligence, digital health, Internet of Things and data-driven technology. And his vision has been to include the wider industry as chairman of the advisory board for his two-year term, which will serve out this remainder of 2021, and build up a strong team under co-heads of the Catalyst Fund in managing directors Francis Ho and Shankar Chandran. And so as he prepared to retire, Sun has also brought in and groomed talent in C. Sean K., who's now acting head of Samsung Strategy and Innovation Center, which runs Catalyst for Samsung's Device Solutions Division. And Samsung more broadly is preparing new talent with ideas for changes to maintain this lead, having hired David Lee for Samsung Next, which invests on behalf of the Consumer Electronics and Mobile Business Unit, and disbanding Look Julia's data-centric team. On the back of some record quarterly results last year, this might seem a surprising time to shake up its US corporate venturing and innovation units, but innovation feeds off new energy and ideas while recognising the accomplishments and history. And Samson's been a role model in showing exactly that. So thanks again, Young, and uh, I'll now hand it over to you, Thierry, to give us uh, the, 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 the other big news that you've seen over the past week. Well, thank you, Jim, and uh, thank you, Young Son, as you said. Well, the big deals of the week are indeed very big deals, starting with Robin Hood, which has been in the mainstream media quite a lot over the recent few weeks. The share trading platform developer has been ground zero for the GameStop rush, as well as increased activity for other so-called meme stocks like AMC, Nokia and BlackBerry. But those increased trading levels means more cash required to meet SEC requirements, 
And the Alphabet and Rock Nation-backed company first raised a billion dollars from existing investors, along with some 500 to 600 million in debt financing a week ago Friday, and then another 2.4 billion dollars over the weekend to come out with 3.4 billion dollars on the Monday. Yeah, I mean it's uh, <laughs> it is a, a sort of tail in the half this whole <laughs> yeah. uh, this whole GameStop uh, sort of scenario, but also sort of Robin Hood's role in it, and it's been a lot of sort of conspiracy theories in some ways and uncertainty in other places, you know. But um, you know, but I think you know there's a couple of things that I've sort of been thinking about one you know is that the whole GameStop thing shows the disconnect that now happens between the ownership or economic ownership of a company you know and actually the desire for that company to do well and also the sort of the the, the governance on the management in order for that to deliver and it's effectively being broken you know and I think in the public markets and I think this is you know, one of the sort of challenges or one of the reasons that we've seen increasing amounts of money. M&G, which is a big mutual fund manager, announced that they're being investing $5 billion in private capital markets going forward. And the reason is, is because, you know, still within private capital markets, you know, if you own shares in a company, you do well if that company delivers on the whole. You know, it's very hard to do well economically owning the company and putting it into bankruptcy or making it fail. Whereas the use of sort of options, derivatives and the like have broken that connection. And it's part of the reason you see this sort of massive disconnect between sort of professional management who are trying to run a business who maybe will get kicked out by the shareholders or, you know, at some uncertain period of time. You know, and what they're incentivized to do short or longer term. And then the sort of the actual investors in it are, are, you know, are not necessarily motivated for that company to succeed. The, sh- the hedge funds in GameStop would have made more money than they had invested, as it were, than the company was worth if the company had failed. And then a Robin Hood comes in and, you know, retail traders bid it up you know, on a sort of almost equivalent of a sort of Ponzi scheme, you've got to try and bid it up and then time your exit so you maximise your chances. And it's it's just the underlying principle, there is a business there which employs people that, you know, is trying to service something, you know, whether it, it should or it shouldn't, you know, the economic incentives for if it does well, it gets rewarded and can continue versus it gets wiped out and people profit off that. It's just, you know, it's part of the reason I think that so much more value, relatively speaking, is being created in the private capital markets and then trying to time an, an entrance to the public markets. So I think that's one thing, you know, and then a group like Robin Hood doesn't make its money from servicing its customers to do those trades. It's making its money by selling that data and information to the brokers, the Wall Street brokers you know, in others to then work out how the front run ahead of ahead of these investments and trades. And it's just like there's something so fundamentally flawed in that whole sort of scenario and economic system that Robin Hood might be a perfectly good business and deserves to raise the money and it's doing some great things to sort of open up sort of trading and make it, you know, better, which is, you know, fundamentally a good thing. But a business model which is designed to take that 
data and allow others to profit more of it. You know, it's just, I don't know, we've seen all of this in the social media world, you know, over the past 20 years. And, it, you know, that's not, you know, being particularly productive when it's viewed that way. You know, so I, I just think that there's a whole, you know, this whole Robin Hood, you know, GameStop thing is just uncovering a sort of, a, you know, fairly toxic rock in some ways. Shouldn't have opened on a downer. <laughs> what next, Jerry? Bit of a rant there. <laughs> well, in uh, in happier news, Kuaishu went public in Hong Kong this Friday morning in a hugely oversubscribed IPO in which it raised $5.4 billion only to see its shares open at a price nearly three times that of the IPO. The short-form video app developer had secured $4.35 billion in funding from investors including Tencent and Baidu prior to the offering, and now has a market cap that stands around the $160 billion mark. Crikey, if Kwashu's worth this, how much would ByteDance, which owns TikTok, yeah, that did come to the market? But again, it's just like... You know, how do you do an IPO? You know, raises a huge amount of money. Fantastic. Only to then effectively see, you know, that value of the company rise threefold on the first day. And you just, the only people who benefit from that, it's not the company that benefits, obviously, they get away sort of a good price. It's not necessarily the existing shareholders to get away it's the sort of people who get from the the investment banks which are all the big sort of clients of the investment banks get from them the you know the early allocation and then if they choose to flip it they've made three times the money in the day you know and it's like really you know the investment banks make an absolute killing in terms of the fees that they can charge only to then see it rise threefold you know, and the people who benefit, there are other customers who come in at the next IPO, you know, and the same things happen or do other trades and, you know, and they kind of scratch the backs all the way, I'm sure, that potentially could happen, you know. And again, it's just like fantastic that this entrepreneurial company, backed I think by Tencent, among others, you know, is doing well, servicing a need in the sort of short form video market. You know, Tencent have missed out on ByteDance. They backquash you support it through the WeChat app. It's a great sort of entrepreneurial success story, corporate venture and very good, you know, and all the rest of it. But it's just this sort of, you look at the public capital markets, you can just scratch your head about how relatively gamed it seems to be. Yeah, it, um, hey, it, it still makes me wish I was an investor because I... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, you can do. I mean, use Robin Hood to you, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know if Robin Hood is actually available in the UK. I don't, uh, I haven't I looked at that. I think they were trying that, to, weren't uh, they? I think they were, that was their sort of international expansion plan. I think they were looking to do it, but, you know, there's bound to be other ways to do it. But. Well, yes, it's, it's, it's perfectly possible to, uh, to buy shares in the UK. Well, <laughs> that's how we funded the mining and railway industries in the US and other places capital markets (laughs) that's very true well then we have a a company potentially coming back to corporate venturing and that's us-based printing technology producer xerox which plans to launch innovation and corporate development divisions through a reorganization involving the formation of a 250 million dollar corporate venturing arm xerox's corporate development group will engage in investments and M&A deals, as well as deploying that $250 million fund. 
The unit is yet to be launched, but will invest in mid-sized growth stage companies aligned with Xerox's strategic interests. It'll be led by Executive VP Louis Pasteur, who has also been appointed Chief Corporate Development Officer and Chief Legal Officer. Yeah, I mean, really interested in this, isn't it? I mean, I think if memory serves, Xerox was, you know, one of the doing corporate venturing back in the 60s and probably the first or second wave of CVC that we saw from then. The so-called nifty 50 stocks, which were rising and growth was all the rage back then. You know, Xerox actually all the way through up until the sort of 90s had a had a pretty effective unit. I think one of their sort of, when they set up a specific fund, you know, first deal, you know, returned a couple of hundred million, you know, from its investment. And it was regarded as pretty effective because it was looking for Minority deals and third-party companies that maybe you know, wouldn't support, but, you know, classic corporate venturing. And then in the 90s, they sort of, you know, I think there was a little bit of uh, the green-eyed monster coming in. And, uh, you know, there were some changes in personnel, management level, and they sort of, you know, changed it. So, you know, it wasn't so much corporate venture capital, you know, as, uh, as some people would see it now. And, um you know, and the performance dipped and, and then they sort of shuttered the unit. So it's good to see them back. And Xerox is actually sort of quite an interesting company when you look at things like 3D printing, you know, and, uh, you know, as well as obviously the sort of general printing, you know, they run their Palo Alto Research Center, the innovation unit. One of the other promotions and changes they've got is to a sort of new person running that after Tolga left to HP, you know, and so I think they're quite an interesting inflection point. Xerox failed in its 30-odd billion acquisition attempt for Hewlett-Packard. You know, they've, I think they've developed a good innovation strategy. They're in an exciting area. I think the 3D printing one could be a super interesting space. We'll actually be doing a round table on that, uh, on that sector at the end of April, final week of April. So, uh, yeah, so I think it's uh, interesting. It'd be interesting to see what Louis does in terms of actually how it approaches, but I think their starting point is to uh, learn the lessons from the past and you know and sort of apply it in the right way. And it seems like they're doing that in their approach here. So hats off to them, and uh, uh, it, it seems like it could be a good uh, new entrance to the community. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, to seeing what they uh, what they do and who they invest in. Well, the crossover between uh, the corporate and university venturing worlds this week was actually an exit. Stem cell immunotherapy developer Sana Biotechnology, which is based on research at Harvard, UCSF, and University of Washington, and was co-founded by former executives of Juno, that was actually acquired by Celgene for $9 billion a couple of years ago, has floated in an offering that netted it nearly $588 million. That's more than four times as much as its $150 million original target, and reputedly the largest IPO ever for a preclinical biotech company. Shares surged 40% on the first day, from $25 to $35.10, so that green shoe option looks likely, which could push proceeds further to nearly $676 million. It comes about eight months after Sanabio disclosed $700 million in early-stage funding from investors including GV, the Alphabet subsidiary, as well as Osage University Partners. And its current share price gives it a market cap of about $7 billion, although who knows what that looks like by the time the episode comes out on Monday at this rate. <laughs> yeah, great deal, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, you, you imagine the former executives of Juno having, having sold the company you know, for 
9 billion, you know, I think they were obviously inspired to try and go one step further, which is an impressive uh, attitude. And uh, in Santa, they really seem to have something exciting on their hands. If you can get an IPO away, raise that amount of money, you know, and see your valuation increase to about 7 billion, all before you've got anything in the in the clinical trials, I think people are fairly confident they must have something pretty impressive there because, you know, certainly anything to do with stem cell immunotherapy, you know, the whole sort of oncology and targeting cancer, let alone a whole host of other things, I think would be really exciting because once you get the stem cells, you can go anywhere. Things as we found over the past year with the COVID disease with um, you know, messenger RNA, you know, it's a kind of software, you know, that can go into cells and target anything. If you could do the immunotherapy type of piece from stem cells, again, you know, the sort of the whole of the body's potentially, um, you know, at your sort of beck and call and it might create other options for them. So very impressive. But um interested, Chair, in your thoughts from the sort of university, the collaboration between Harvard, University of California and University of Washington feels like it's quite an interesting piece, but I imagine it's quite complex to actually do a spin out from that basis and uh, how it would work. Do you see these types of things often? I mean, it happens and it happens internationally even. I can't remember the name of the company now, it really escapes me, but there's a, um, there's a spin out of Cambridge and Lund University in Sweden as well. So, so those deals happen. I imagine the licensing agreements are, are, uh, are quite complex and they would be beyond me. I, I gotta say, I'm not a, uh, a licensing expert or, or patent attorney. But yeah, they, they do happen. They're probably rarer, but, but they do appear every so often on, uh, on our radar. Interesting enough, if, if this IPO specifically does go to $676 million, if, if underwriters buy the additional shares, it would just about beat Harvard's other recent success, which was Moderna's IPO in 2018, which was six, $604 million. So uh, Harvard, Harvard specifically is definitely uh, definitely on a roll with their uh, with their spin outs. Yeah, interesting. On that stuff. Well, interesting. Good one, Joe. Thanks for that. And what about the other new, more news and briefs? Do you see? Well, it's interesting that after the Ubers and Airbnbs of the world have gone public, a wave of new companies in more COVID-resistant sectors have stepped up to fill that void at the top of the VC-backed valuation heap, and quickly too. Data engineering software producer Databricks has received a billion dollars from investors including Microsoft, Amazon Web Services, Capital G and Salesforce Ventures in a Series G round valuing it at $28 billion. That is a more than fourfold increase from its Series F just over a year ago. And UiPath's valuation is even higher, the automation software provider having pulled in $750 million in Series F funding at a $35 billion post-money valuation. Corporate investors Tencent and Capital G weren't specifically identified as participants in the round, which more than tripled UiPath's valuation from its July Series E round. It's going to be interesting to see how much higher that valuation can go when it executes that IPO for which it confidentially filed in December. Online food delivery has been heavily boosted in the past year as well, and Good Eggs combines several different areas, prepared food and meal kits, farm-to-table produce, alcohol and flour delivery in a single offering. It's also managed to raise $100 million from investors including GV and Riches, despite operating mainly in the San Francisco Bay Area. The capital will support its expansion into Southern California, 
with wider movement surely on the horizon. And Telium, developer of a management software tool for customer data, has secured $96 million in Series G financing at a $1.2 billion valuation, increasing its overall funding to $160 million. Its earlier funding came from investors including Sumitomo's Presidio Ventures Unit, ABN AMRO Digital Impact Fund, City Ventures and Parkwood, though none were named in the latest round, which was co-led by Georgian and Silver Lake Waterman. And Mobile Premier League, the developer of an online gaming platform focused on the South and Southeast Asian markets, was founded about three years ago and has already notched up its fourth funding round, raising $95 million from investors including Susquehanna International Group, Go Ventures and Telstra Ventures. The Series D round valued it at $945 million post-money, and the proceeds will go to bolstering its esports offering. When it came to funds, we have telecoms and internet group SoftBank, which is launching a $100 million fund to invest specifically in companies based around the Miami, Florida area in the US. The vehicle has already chosen its first portfolio companies, including cybersecurity software developer Lumu Technologies, and it will invest both in locally founded startups as well as those willing to move to Miami. Exits, we have a few of those as well. Genetic Testing Service 23andMe has chosen to go the reverse merger route for a public listing, joining with VG Acquisition Corporation, a SPAC sponsored by conglomerate Virgin Group in a deal that will value the merged business at about $3.5 billion. It had received more than $870 million in funding pre-IPO from an investor base that includes GV, Wushi Aptech, Johnson & Johnson, GlaxoSmithKline, Roche and Illumina. And Astra is said to become the first private space launch services provider to hit the public markets, having agreed a reverse merger of its own with SPAC Holicity at an implied valuation of $2.1 billion. The deal was actually agreed a year after Astra emerged from stealth, having secured over $100 million from investors including Airbus Ventures, which is slowly growing a significant presence in the space tech sector, and two months after it launched its first rocket into space. Grizzly's investors, which include Wayner RSC, are heading for an exit of a different kind after the alcohol delivery service agreed to be acquired by Uber for $1.1 billion. The company had disclosed approximately $85 million in funding and will join an expanding range of Uber delivery services spearheaded by its Uber Eats subsidiary. It also stands as a sign of growth in the on-demand service sector and perhaps forthcoming consolidation. Roblox has had an extremely busy couple of months filing for and then postponing its IPO, changing over to a direct listing, raising $520 million from investors including Warner Music Group at a hugely increased $29.5 billion valuation, and now reportedly putting plans on hold to go public. The game creation platform developer, which also counts Tencent among its investors, is postponing the listing due to regulatory scrutiny on how it classifies revenue from sales of its Robux currency on the platform. And a somewhat sadder ending, well it is a sad ending, shared workspace provider Notel was valued above a billion dollars just 18 months ago, but has filed for bankruptcy. A reminder that while some business models have thrived during the coronavirus pandemic, others have been far unluckier. Notel had raised roughly $560 million from investors including Morai Trust, Rocket Internet, Itoshu, Bloomberg Beta, the Sapir Organization, Raiffeisen, Wolfson Group, Moynian Group and Wainbridge Capital. And finally, some more comings and goings from you other than obviously Yongsun, who we talked about earlier. 
Ben Luckett, head of Aviva Ventures, the corporate venture capital arm of UK-listed insurance firm Aviva, has been promoted to chief innovation officer. Luckett set up Aviva Ventures in 2015, and Ant Barker has been promoted from senior manager at Aviva Ventures to now head the unit. And Process Ventures, the corporate venturing arm of Euronext listed your internet and e-commerce group Process, has hired Sachin Banat to lead its investment activities in Southeast Asia. Based in Singapore, according to LinkedIn, Banat was previously a principal at B Capital Group. And finally, James Wilkie, the chief executive of University of Birmingham's tech transfer arm, University of Birmingham Enterprise, has retired after more than 14 years leading the institution's knowledge exchange activities. He's also stepped down from the Midlands Innovation Commercialization of Research Accelerator, or MICRA, a multi-university initiative he had led for just over two years. Wonderful. Thanks for that, Thierry. And uh, it's worth noting that I think you'll be doing the, after your excellent Scotland spin-outs report uh, just come out uh, last month, you'll be looking at the north of England spin-outs in the UK for the next quarterly edition. That will be timed around our our sort of uh, focused event for Scotland and north of England, including parts of the Midlands, I'm sure, which will be on around the 28th of April. We've partnered with Harriet Watt University to celebrate its 200th anniversary this year as the world's first mechanical-focused university. So uh, excited for that, and uh, I'm sure if you need more help and support and in terms of tapping some of the universities, they'll be reaching out with you for open arms. Yes, indeed. Yes, if anyone wants to reach out to me, if anyone's listening from the north of England, you can email me, thelis at globaluniversityventuring.com, T-H-E-L-E-S at globaluniversityventuring.com. I would love to speak to you. And thanks very much for the past week. And uh, any other thoughts from people, do reach out. But thanks once again, Thierry, and uh, we'll speak soon, everyone. And that is it for this week's edition of the Global Venturing Review podcast. As always, these are only the top headlines from the past week. So do head on over to globalcorporateventuring.com, globaluniversityventuring.com, and globalimpactventuring.com to find everything else. And of course, do check back daily to stay on top of the news as it happens. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if this is your first time listening, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which we really appreciate because it helps us grow our audience. And don't forget to recommend us to your friends and colleagues as well. Maybe even tweet out the episode or post about it on LinkedIn. Keep an eye out too on Wednesdays for our leadership series where we talk with thought leaders from all over the world to find out more about how they are supporting the innovation ecosystem. If you have any feedback, comments, questions, you can email me at thales at globaluniversityventuring.com. That's T-H-E-L-E-S at globaluniversityventuring.com. You can also tweet us at GC Venturing or GU Venturing. My name is Jerry Hillis. My co-host is Editor-in-Chief James Mawson. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. Do check him out on inearproduction.com for all your podcasting needs. Our intro music is by Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons license. We'll be back with more news next Monday. Have a productive week, everyone. Goodbye. Global Venturing Review was produced by In-Ear Production. You can find out more by going to inearproduction.com.